Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. For this episode, I'm bringing on a special guest to help me out. Moxie LaBouche is the writer and host of Your Brain on Facts, a weekly podcast dedicated to all the things you thought you knew and things you never knew you wanted to know. And without further ado, here's Moxie. They never would have taken the boy if they hadn't let the students out early that day. George Weyerhaeuser Jr. was the son of a wealthy family in Tacoma, Washington. On a typical day at lunchtime, George would walk from Lowell Elementary School to the Annie Wright Seminary to meet his sister, after which the two of them would be picked up by the family chauffeur and be driven home for lunch. But on the afternoon of Friday, May 24, 1935, George's school let out early, meaning he got out too early to meet his sister or the chauffeur at the usual time. So George decided to walk home instead. He headed home along an overgrown path that ran past the edge of the Tacoma Lawn Tennis Club. But when George got to the end of the path where it met Burrow Road, there was a green 1927 Buick parked by the side of the road with two strangers waiting inside. One of the men got out of the car and approached George. He asked him for directions to Stadium Way. George became so focused on this man that he didn't notice the man's accomplice sneaking up behind him until it was too late. The other stranger grabbed George from behind and wrapped him up in an old blanket. Then the two kidnappers dragged the kicking and screaming child inside the car. When George didn't come home that afternoon, the Weyerhaeuser family immediately phoned the police. Within a few hours, a ransom letter addressed to whom it may concern arrived via special delivery, demanding $200,000 in small, unmarked bills. The back of the letter bore George's signature. $200,000 was a considerable amount of money back in 1927, but the family could certainly afford to pay. The Weyerhaeuser Company owned hundreds of thousands of acres of timberland throughout the Pacific Northwest. At the time, they owned the largest lumber mill in the world, as well as their own pulp mill. The ransom letter demanded the family take an advertisement out in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer when the money was ready, or in five days, whichever came first. The ad was supposed to read, We are ready, and be signed, Percy Minnie. Once the ad appeared in the paper, the family would be notified of where and how to deliver the money. Because the ransom letter had been sent using the U.S. Postal Service, this made the kidnapping a felony, according to the Federal Kidnapping Act, better known as the Lindbergh Law, since it had been enacted in the wake of the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's son three years earlier. As soon as the FBI became involved, the feds began compiling the serial numbers of the bills used to be paid to the kidnappers. This was some of the same tactics they used in the Lindbergh kidnapping as well. And it had worked then in leading them to arrest Bruno Richard Hauptman for the crime. The Weyerhaeusers bought themselves a little additional time by placing three ads in the newspaper, the first of which appeared on Saturday. 
That first ad informed the kidnappers they planned on having the money ready by Monday. They also ran a second ad later that same day indicating that due to the publicity the case had brought, they needed another method of contacting the kidnappers. The final ad appeared the following Tuesday. This one simply read, We are ready, Percy Minnie. The next day a letter arrived instructing J.P. Weyerhauser to register a room at the Ambassador Hotel under the name James Paul Jones. There was also a handwritten note from George included in the letter, informing his family he was safe. J.P. did as instructed. Then at the hotel he received another letter telling him to leave the money in a location in Rainier Valley. He followed these instructions as well, but the kidnappers never showed. On Thursday, J.P. got a call asking him what had happened. He told the caller he did as instructed, but no one showed to collect the money. He was then given new instructions to drive to a location near Angle Lake. There he was to leave the $200,000 in the front seat of the car, then leave the car running with the driver's door open. J.P. followed these instructions to the letter, then hitched a ride home to Tacoma. Early Saturday morning, over a week after he was taken, George's kidnappers let the boy go. They left the boy inside a shack just south of Issaquah and told him to wait for help to arrive. But George eventually wandered off to find help on his own. He found it from a family living on a farm six miles away who phoned the police. Although the kidnappers got away with the money, their success didn't last. Within a week, the authorities were able to identify the three perpetrators as William Daynard, Harmon Metz Whaley, and his wife Margaret. All three were quickly placed under arrest and convicted of various charges. Police were able to recover more than $157,000 of the ransom money. After George was grown and took over the family business, he actually began corresponding with Harmon Whaley in prison. Upon the man's release, he even hired him to work at the lumber mill. All things considered, the kidnapping of George Weyerhauser went off more or less according to plan, and it even had a happy ending. The kidnappers treated George fairly well, and the boy remained unharmed during his ordeal. The parents paid the ransom, and in return they got their son back safe and sound. But not all kidnappings for ransom go so easily. Sadly, many kidnappings result in the victim being murdered before their safe return. From a coldly logical perspective, it just makes sense, since it eliminates the potential for leaving behind a witness who could identify as kidnappers. Another problem with kidnapping is if you're going to nab someone and demand money, you need to make sure it's someone wealthy enough to pay the ransom. This, of course, leads to a third dilemma. If you're going to kidnap someone for ransom, you need to make sure the family doesn't say no. That's precisely the scenario that played out in 1973 when John Paul Getty III, the grandson of J. Paul Getty, the richest man in the world, was kidnapped in Rome. I'm Nate Hale. And I'm Moxie Labouche, and this is your Brain on the Conspirators. You might think that if you ever became the richest person in the world, then you'd have nothing to worry about. But that wasn't the case with John Paul Getty, better known throughout history as J. Paul Getty. 
The American-born British petro-industrialist once held the title of world's richest private citizen, according to the 1966 Guinness Book of World Records. At the time, he was worth an estimated $1.2 billion, approximately $7.2 billion in today's money. When he died in June 1976, he was worth more than $6 billion, equivalent to $21 billion today. But despite all that wealth, Getty remained terribly insecure and paranoid throughout his life. He spent many years of his life holed up in his private castle, Sutton Place, near London. The massive estate was once Henry VIII's summer residence. Some stories claim the place was even haunted by the headless ghost of Anne Boleyn. To keep the world out, Getty hired squads of armed guards and erected electric fences topped with barbed wire around the estate. He set loose attack dogs to patrol the grounds, and even had a pet lion he named Nero. In 1903, George Getty, an attorney in the insurance industry, purchased 1,100 acres of land in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, including the mineral rights. This proved to be a wise decision, because within just a few years, Getty had established oil wells on the land that were pumping out 100,000 barrels of crude oil a month. George Getty's son, J. Paul, was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota on December 15, 1892. In the fall of 1914, George Getty gave his son $10,000 to invest in the family's expanding oil fields. The first lot J. Paul purchased near Haskell, Oklahoma, proved to be crucial to his early financial success. His first well struck oil in August 1915, and by the following summer, the amount of crude being pumped from the ground had made J. Paul Getty a millionaire at the age of 23. But despite his son's success, George Getty never thought his son could make it in the family business on his own. George thought J. Paul was unreliable. Throughout his life, J. Paul Getty had five children from just as many wives. This rapid succession of marriages and divorces so distressed the very religious George Getty that when he died, he left only $500,000 of his $10 million fortune to his son. After his father's death, J. Paul did receive one-third of the stock in George Getty Incorporated, while his mother received the remaining two-thirds, giving her the controlling interest. Despite his mother being in charge, J. Paul still helped steer the family holdings. He shrewdly invested the family resources during the Great Depression, acquiring several other oil companies over the years, including the Pacific Western Oil Corporation and the Mission Corporation, which owned Tidewater Oil and Skelly Oil. In 1967, Getty merged these holdings into Getty Oil, cementing his place as the richest man in the world at the time. In 1957, Fortune magazine declared J. Paul Getty the richest American at the time. Within just another decade, the Guinness Book of World Records would declare him the richest man in the world. But Getty's singular focus on making more money came at a price. He was notoriously stingy throughout his life. This was probably most famously demonstrated by the payphone he had installed at his London estate for guests to use. His overwhelming frugality also cost him many relationships within his own family. By the time the Fortune article came out, Getty had been divorced five times. One of his exes accused him of having no interest in his children, that is, until they were old enough to take up the mantle and keep the family business going. One of those children he remained estranged from into adulthood was John Paul Getty Jr. He married his childhood sweetheart, 
Gail Harris in 1956, and in November of that year, the two of them had a son, John Paul Getty III, whom everyone called Little Paul. John Jr. was an artistic type with little head for or interest in the family business. But with a new family to support, he had to go to his brother George begging for a job. George was head of Getty Oil's Los Angeles operations, and he decided to start his brother out at the very bottom, making him pump gas in a Getty-owned gas station. In 1958, after years of keeping them at a distance, John Jr. and Gail met J. Paul Getty in Paris. It came as a surprise to everyone how much they all got along. J. Paul enjoyed his son and daughter-in-law's company so much that he immediately began taking steps to keep them close by. He appointed John Jr. the head of Getty Oil's operations in Italy. This was despite the fact that John Jr. had little knowledge of running a major business. John Jr. and Gail loved life in Rome. There they got to hobnob among the wealthy elite. They also got to hang out with the rich Italian artist community, which was much more John Jr.'s speed. The couple had three more children, but the marriage collapsed after less than a decade after the stress of running his father's company grew too much for John Jr. They divorced in 1964. Little Paul had difficulty adjusting to his parents splitting up. He missed his father after John Jr. moved to London to fully indulge in the swinging 60s drug scene. He also couldn't stand seeing his mother dating other men. Paul became acting out, even going so far as to set fire to his boarding school at one point. For that act, Paul was expelled. John Jr. took little Paul back to London to live at J. Paul Getty's London Palace for a while. But eventually he returned to live with his mother in Rome. But back in Italy, Paul continued acting out and got kicked out of yet another private school. At the time this was all happening, John Jr. married an actress named Talitha Paul. The newlywed couple moved to Marrakesh, where they set up a small artistic community that drew in an eclectic mix of big-name celebrities, including Jane Fonda, Yves Saint Laurent, and the Rolling Stones. Little Paul went to visit his father in Morocco and immediately fell in love with not only his new stepmother but the rich artistic community she had helped his father create. When he returned to Rome, his behavior only worsened. In 1971, when he was 14 years old, he was kicked out of yet another Catholic school. Around the same time, his stepmother Talitha died of an alleged heroin overdose, an event his own father was suspected of playing a key role in. The loss of his stepmother, as well as having all the free time no school afforded him, only made his behavior even wilder. Paul started experimenting with drugs, and eventually worked his way up to dealing marijuana and cocaine as well. He began making a name for himself as a local celebrity, primarily off his family name. He began doing some modeling and became active in the Rome arts scene. John Jr. strongly disapproved of his son's behavior, and he was sent off to live with J. Paul Getty at his father's London castle in order to help straighten him out. Paul Jr. didn't change his wild behavior, but he did gain a new appreciation for his grandfather's money and for the power and influence it afforded him. In 1972, little Paul returned to Rome, where he continued on with his hard partying ways. He had many girlfriends, and he did a lot of drinking and drugs. At the same time, Paul began trying to become an artist himself. He met some local painters and began learning the craft. He also began selling some of his art in order to support himself. 
It was also around this time that he met 24-year-old German twins Gisela Martinsacker and her sister Jutta. Both young women were models and actresses, as well as fixtures in the local art scene. They were also strongly into the hippie activist community. Paul moved in with the young women, and eventually Martine would become his girlfriend. It was Martine and Yuda who pushed Paul to become more politically active himself. He began appearing at political rallies in which he denounced his own grandfather's oil business for destroying the planet. At the same time, Paul fell deeper and deeper into the local drug scene. As he continued dealing and doing lots of drugs, Paul became acquainted with members of some of the local organized crime gangs, including one infamous organization known as the Malavita. As far as Italian organized crime goes, I'm sure you're all familiar with the Mafia. But throughout the rural parts of Sicily, Sardinia, and Calabria, there existed several other smaller interconnected organized crime groups. Following World War II, many of these outlying regions were more or less left behind by the rapidly growing industrial hubs to the north. As a result, throughout the 1960s and 70s, many homespun organized crime groups began springing up to fill the void left behind by weak government control. In order to expand their empire, groups such as the Malavita turned to kidnapping as an early method of making money. In Calabria, the dominant criminal gang was known as the Andrangheta, and they were closely tied with the Malavita. In the early days, most of these kidnappings involved small gangs snatching wealthy locals and holding them for ransom. But eventually, as the groups became more organized and more brazen, they began looking elsewhere for even bigger fish. As Paul Jr. began making contacts within the Malavita, he also began finding himself having idle chats with people about a potential way to make money off his family name. Specifically, ways to kidnap himself. For a time, Paul loved the danger and excitement of hanging out with real gangsters. But eventually those feelings faded and began to turn to real concern. Not only was there an eye-opening incident in which a group of middle-aged gangsters trapped Martine and Yuta in a bathroom for three days, threatening to rape them, but then Paul became increasingly paranoid that some of his idle talk about kidnapping might have given his associates some rather unsavory ideas about his own well-being. In the days leading up to his abduction, Paul became increasingly paranoid that he was being followed. Despite these fears, Paul still kept mentioning to Martine and Yuta his idea of kidnapping himself in order to get enough money out of his grandfather to start an artist colony of his very own. Paul wanted to build a community in Morocco, much like the one his father had introduced him to years earlier. But then even that talk faded away as Paul, Martine, and Zuda began making money in other ways. They all began getting more modeling gigs and even scored some bit parts in movies, including one directed by Roman Polanski. There was even one especially scandalous moment when all three of them posed nude for an Italian magazine. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On the morning of July 9th, 1973, Paul proposed to Martine, and she accepted. Paul was so elated by the news that he spent that night getting completely wasted as he hopped from night spot to night spot. 
For a while that evening, he even hung out with his friends, Roman Polanski and Andy Warhol. But as the bar shut down, Paul wasn't ready to call it a night. He continued wandering the streets of Rome, and at one point past midnight, he got it into his head that he'd like to take a drive down to the Italian coast. He ran into an old girlfriend, and he started off by asking her for a ride. But that quickly escalated into a loud argument when the young woman accused Paul of giving her a venereal disease. There's some speculation the young woman may have been working for the Malavita at the time. But one thing we do know is she said the worst thing she could possibly have said to Paul. That he was nothing without his family name. Paul stormed off in a huff. He was still very drunk and very high on drugs. Sometime around 3 a.m. he stopped by a newsstand and bought a comic book and a pack of cigarettes. The 16-year-old stumbled his way toward the Piazza Farnesa. We paused in front of a large marble fountain and became fixated on the face of one of the carvings. In his drug stupor, Paul became convinced the statue was grinning at him. Right at that moment, a car came screeching up behind him and at least two men jumped out. They grabbed Paul and shoved him in the back of the car. One of the men stomped on Paul's back as the car sped off. They blindfolded Paul and bound his hands and feet. The man kept pouring whiskey down his throat to ensure he remained drowsy and unfocused. Although Paul didn't know it at the time, they were headed for the Calabrian countryside. Paul was now in the hands of the Andrangheta. For the start of his captivity, Paul was kept blindfolded and always on the move. Initially, his kidnappers taped his blindfold to his face. Then, once, they stopped somewhere in Calabria. They marched him from location to location. They slept by day and moved him at night. Paul was seldom ever sure where he was. Once, when it started to rain, his kidnappers dragged him inside a dirt-floored shack. There, one of the kidnappers tore the blindfold off his face, hurting him. The other gang members chastised the man, snapping at him that Paul was not to be harmed. It wouldn't always remain that way, though. As Paul's eyes adjusted to the light, he saw that all the men holding him captive wore ski masks. Even still, Paul tried averting his gaze as much as possible, because he knew if they even suspected he could identify them, they'd murder him for sure. Back in Rome, both the twins, Martine and Zuda, as well as Paul's mother, Gail, began to realize something was wrong when Paul didn't return. At that point, Gail still had some suspicions her unreliable son had vanished of his own accord. But that all changed when she received a threatening phone call from a man who identified himself as Cinquenta, Italian for 50, who said that he was a member of a group that had her son and that he would remain unharmed as long as she paid his ransom. Gail told the man she didn't have any money of her own, which was true considering she was divorced from John Jr. and far removed from J. Paul Getty himself. At one point early on, one of Paul's kidnappers provided him with a pen and paper and dictated a letter to him. They wanted the letter to go directly to Paul's mother, but instead Paul gave them Martine's address. When Martine got the letter, she ran straight to Gail's apartment, only to discover that Gail wasn't home. Because of a mix-up with the doorman, she was even given the impression that Gail had left the country. Which made zero sense to Martine, but even still at that point, she felt she had no choice but to take the letter to the police. Gail had already been told by Cinquenta not to involve the police. She hadn't actually left the country. Instead, she had gone to the movies that day to clear her head while she figured out what to do. When she discovered Martine had involved the police, Gail was furious. But ultimately, it didn't matter because the police didn't believe either Martine or Gail's stories. 
They looked at the letter and decided it was all just some sort of joke. Gail phoned John Jr. for help, but he couldn't return to Italy because of a warrant out for his arrest for cocaine possession. Somehow, the story of Paul's kidnapping leaked to the press. But even the Italian newspapers treated the entire incident like a big joke. Paul's reputation preceded him, it seemed. It didn't help when reporters learned Gail had gone to the movies while she was allegedly worried that her son had been kidnapped. The kidnappers demanded just over $17 million in ransom money. There was only one person Gail could turn to for that amount of cash. But J. Paul Getty wouldn't even take her calls. More letters and more phone calls from Cinquanta came for Gail. During each of these calls, Cinquanta threatened to begin cutting off pieces of Paul and mailing them to her unless she coughed up the dough. At that point, John Jr. went to his father and asked for the money. But the miserly J. Paul Getty flatly refused. The following day, after the press caught word of the family's patriarch's refusal to pay his own grandson's ransom, J. Paul famously went to reporters and explained his reasoning. He said that he had 13 other grandchildren, and if he gave in to this group's demands, then that would send a message that all of his grandchildren were fair game. In Italy, close family bonds are commonplace. So Getty's refusal sent shockwaves throughout the Italian press, as well as throughout the Andrangheta. None of them could fathom how someone like Getty could be so cold toward his own kin. Days turned to weeks and the kidnappers grew increasingly agitated. They never expected this situation to drag on as long as it did. Most of the kidnappings they were involved in were over relatively quickly, since, in most of those instances, the families were quick to pay. But they had never encountered a family quite like the Gettys before. It didn't help that a lot of the Italian press continued to treat the entire situation like a joke. There were even rumors that Paul Jr. had kidnapped himself, after some of his former friends began coming forward and talking about Paul's idle chit-chat about doing just that. Behind the scenes, J. Paul Getty read the same accounts in the press and decided to get to the bottom of it himself. But at the same time, Getty wanted to keep his distance. Getty was terrified of the stories he'd heard of the Mafia. So he sent former CIA agent Fletcher Chase to Italy to investigate and report back. Chase fancied himself a real-life James Bond type and quickly insinuated himself into the drama playing out in Rome. He spent a lot of Getty's money chasing down leads that went nowhere. He also came to strongly suspect the entire kidnapping might be an elaborate hoax as well. In fact, he even suspected Gale might be the real mastermind behind it. Chase demanded he be at the center of the hostage negotiation. But this turned into a disaster early on when he and Cinquenta continually got into loud arguments. Eventually, Cinquanta refused to deal with Chase at all and would only speak to Gale. As the weeks dragged on and Paul remained in captivity, at one point, J. Paul Getty offered John Jr. the ransom money as an advance on his inheritance. But John Jr. turned this offer down since it meant digging into his own eventual fortune. Meanwhile, the kidnappers began to take out their frustrations on little Paul. Originally, the men who held Paul captive treated him fairly well. They went out of their way not to harm him, and Paul even began to feel friendly towards some of them. But eventually, the original crew of kidnappers were replaced by others, and those men weren't nearly as nice. Paul was forced to write more letters to his mother. The kidnappers kept moving him around often, and even held him in a cave at one point. 
the new kidnappers took away the radio he'd been given by the earlier group. Then they began to do things like play Russian roulette against his head and make other terrifying threats toward him. Then one morning, Paul woke up, and he knew instinctively something very bad was about to happen. They fed him a meal of steak, which turned out to be to keep his iron levels up. He was about to lose a lot of blood. Afterwards, they clipped his hair around his right ear. Then Paul knew exactly what was about to happen. The men made Paul lay his head down. Then one of the men used a razor to slice off Paul's ear. The kidnappers mailed the ear along with a lock of Paul's hair to Gail to show just how serious they were. But an unfortunate coincidence prevented the ear from arriving for several weeks. Unbeknownst to everyone involved, Italy was in the middle of a massive postal strike, and the ear sat in a postal warehouse for several weeks before it finally arrived in Gail's mailbox. During this time, Cinquanta phoned Gail and told her that if the family didn't pay up, then Paul's other ear would be next. But Gail hadn't gotten the ear yet and didn't know what to make of Chinquanta's own confusion. Chinquanta, in turn, didn't believe Gail when she told him she didn't know what he was talking about. The ear finally arrived on November 10th. All this extra time caused the kidnappers to lower their ransom demands to $3.2 million. While all this was going on, Paul's condition worsened. The wound became infected, and his health deteriorated. He grew weak and developed pneumonia. The kidnappers gave him a massive dose of penicillin to compensate, but Paul developed an allergy to the penicillin instead. Once the ear finally did arrive, J. Paul Getty made his final offer of $2.2 million. This was the maximum amount that could still be tax-deductible. He then offered to lend the money to John Jr. at 4% interest. Fletcher Chase still didn't trust Gale, and he insisted he be the one to deliver the ransom money personally. On December 10th, he took two suitcases full of cash with him on a long drive toward Calabria that was prearranged by the Cinquanta. But Chase ended up driving directly into a massive snowstorm and ended up missing the signal from the kidnappers when he was supposed to stop. The kidnappers were furious. They called Gail, demanding to know what went wrong. Gale managed to talk them into giving the ransom drop another try. On December 12th, Chase took the ransom money again, and this time did meet the kidnappers at the pre-selected location. When Chase stopped the car, he was met by a group of masked gunmen who took the money. The Endrangheta finally let Paul go three days later, on December 15, 1973. At that point, he'd been held captive for over five months. The last place he was being held was an old barn in the Calabrian Mountains. From there, the kidnappers took Paul out into the frigid winter night and dropped him off in the middle of a field. He was sick and freezing, and he had no idea where he was when they ripped the blindfold off his face. He stumbled his way through the snow and found his way to a gas station. He told the attendant who he was, but the man didn't want to have anything to do with the Endrangheta and refused to help Paul. From there, Paul lumbered on. He managed to flag down a truck and told the driver his story. The driver acted like he didn't believe Paul either, but evidently he phoned the police after leaving Paul behind. Because soon the police arrived and picked the 17-year-old up and took him to safety. Later on at his mother's suggestion, Paul tried to phone his grandfather and thank him for saving him. But J. Paul Getty refused to come to the phone. 
Nine kidnappers were ultimately apprehended, but most people who have researched this case think these were primarily low-level operators given up by the Endrangheta to take the heat off them. The Endrangheta continued right on kidnapping for ransom for the next two decades. They used the money from these kidnappings, including the Getty Ransom Cash, to help build their criminal organization into a powerful drug and black market weapons criminal enterprise that exists to this day. Paul, meanwhile, tried to return to normal life. But things were never the same for him after that, and being a Getty meant life would never be normal for him. In 1974, he married Martine, who was five months pregnant at the time. In 1977, he had surgery to attach a prosthetic ear. But the post-traumatic stress from his months of captivity drove him to drug and alcohol addiction to soothe his troubled psyche. In 1981, he drank a cocktail of methadone, Valium, and booze, which caused massive liver failure and a stroke. This left him a quadriplegic, partially blind and unable to speak. Afterwards, Gail and Martine cared for him. By 1987, Paul had begun to regain some of his motor skills, although he remained severely handicapped for the remainder of his life. He and Martine divorced in 1993. John Paul Giddy III died at his father's estate at Wormsley Park, Buckinghamshire, on February 5, 2011. He was 54 years old at the time. Since then, the story of the Getty kidnapping has been turned into both a major motion picture and a TV show. Something else that gets written about in the press frequently is that the family appears to be cursed. It's impossible to say whether the family is really cursed with bad luck or just cursed with a massive fortune and all the indulgences that go with it. J. Paul Getty's youngest son, Timothy, died from brain tumor at age six. Right around the same time as the kidnapping of little Paul in 1973, so too did J. Paul's oldest son, George, die of a drug overdose. Then there was also the tragic death of John Jr.'s second wife, Talitha, who died of a mysterious drug overdose herself. The most recent victim of the Getty family curse was J. Paul Getty's grandson, Andrew Getty who was found dead in his Beverly Hills home on March 31, 2015. Andrew's body was discovered by his girlfriend, naked from the waist down and surrounded by a pool of blood. Even though the scene appeared that foul play was involved, the Los Angeles coroner reported the cause of death due to heart disease and heavy drug use. The Conspiratist is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I also want to thank Moxie LaBouche from the Your Brain on Facts podcast for lending her voice to this episode. You can find Moxie's podcast in many of the places where you get your podcasts. In other business, I wanted to thank my latest Patreon supporter, Stina. Thanks so much to you, and thanks to all the rest of you who help support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and an ever-growing collection of bonus mini-episodes. They're just like the regular episodes, only fun size. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings and helps spread the good word about the conspirators to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can also find us on most of the major podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or even send us an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll be back next time.